0: We are rocking here at Real Tales from the Bar Side. This is the podcast where we talk about the shit that goes on in the bar, in the restaurant, with people who own the bar, own the restaurant, run the bar, run the food, do everything and see everything. Don't ever do something or say something that you don't want seen, especially in New York at the bar, because we're watching and talking about it here on Real Tales from the Bar Side. Welcome to another episode of Real Tales from the Bar Side. I'm your host, Matt Flynn. We got a good one today. We always have a good one, but this is a really good one. And we're going to kick things off with the typical bi-weekly rant of the week. This week, we're just going to dust up an old rule that um, I feel like lately has just gone forgotten. Barrooms stay off of politics and religion. Timely, I think. Uh, probably important to have discussions about where you stand on politics these days. Religion, not so much. People don't seem, I don't hear a lot about that in the bar, but politics, man. There's a forum for this, and it's not in my bar. And if you ask other bartenders, I'm pretty sure they'd probably agree with that. When I come into work and the news is on, I shut it off. And I have three old women that are at the bar every single day, frown at me disapprovingly because they wanted to watch CNN. And I tell them every day, we're not watching news at the bar. Why? Well, because one Saturday, and this has nothing to do with the news being on, it just proves my point, I came into work and there was some dickhead with a Make America Great hat on. Now, I don't say he was a dickhead because he was wearing a Make America Great hat, necessarily. Well, yeah, I do. Because it's not the slogan, necessarily but it's the fact that you're wearing that in public. Trump's been in office for how long now? If you're wearing that hat out in public, you're instigating problems. And if you're instigating problems in my fucking bar, guess who's gonna have the problem? It's not gonna be me. I won't let it because I don't have time for that shit. I got a business to run. So inevitably, they moved to the back of the restaurant where they're no longer my problem. A few more people joined them in similar attire and a couple of women who were there that had Hillary buttons on got into it with them. Water was thrown, things were yelled. The shit's just not appropriate, guys. Like, don't rub it in people's faces if your guy won. Don't be hateful. Don't be shitty. And if you're going to talk politics, do it, but do it outside of the bar. That's the rant. And with that in mind, great guest interesting fucking guy. And we're going to have uh, some bar talk, but it's going to go further than that because this man is more interesting than just your everyday bartender, as you'll find out. My man, Ray Boudreaux. Welcome to Real Tales from the Bar Side. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, well, Thanks shit. for having me. Thanks for having me. We're in uh, recording this in the studio, the Boudreaux studio of the Rockaway Boudreaux. That's right. Ray Boudreaux of the Rockaway Boudreaux. It's son of Mary, brother to Darren.
1: You might have heard of us. <laughs> we we know. Yeah, we've heard. Everybody knows the story. You go down to Rockaway, drop
0: those names. You watch the doors fly open for you. <laughs> <laughs> I go to Rockaway a fair amount, so I might actually take you up on that. So we're hanging here in the East Village. They still call this Alphabet City? Alphabet City. Okay, cool. Avenue we're in Alphabet Way, City. Baby. I got chastised once for saying it still. It's Avenue Way. It's fucking Alphabet City. It's Alphabet City. <laughs> Beautiful place. Kicking it and we're talking shop. So this is a bartending podcast. We'll start with the barroom. When did you start bartending, and what did your life look like? You grew up in Queens, right? Yeah, I'm
1: from Rockaway. Uh, I moved to Bayside in high school. Uh, my first job, dishwasher and a sizzler. You know, <laughs> I left there for a busboy's job at Maria's Traderia, and then left there for Enzo's, and you know, bouncing around the restaurant bar business all through high school. You know, for, you know, I, eighth, Senior year in high school, I worked a 40-hour week in uh, like a pizzeria, Okay. Uh, pizza and dine, you know. And uh, then uh, after a couple of uh, different life choices and careers, uh, you know, uh, I wound up back in the bar business at 22. And this time, well, the bar restaurant business. And this time I was like, yeah, I bar back some and I drank plenty. So I was like, you know what? A cocktail had just come out. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to wait tables anymore, manage a restaurant. And I said, I'm going to be a bartender. You know, and I made a phony resume, you know, on some uh, restaurants that my mom had worked in And I knew it closed, so nobody could check the references. You got you you know, to do it, yeah. You know, and I just I ran off 100 copies, went in the city, and I started uh, dropping off my resume at places. I got a play a job call uh, as a bartender at the Gloucester Cafe, so it was in the lobby of the Palace hotel uh, which is where is that at? it's like right across street from st patrick's cathedral oh beautiful okay um and you know it was that you know lunchtime crowd you know happy hour crowd um and you know that's where i learned 10 bar you know i'll never forget too like when i went in for the interview i was a beer drinker you know and i didn't know how to make drinks you know truth be told <laughs> and uh the assistant manager this nice woman she sat me down and, and she was young too you know, not as young as me, but she was in her mid-twenties, and she asked me the recipe to five drinks. I swear to you, to this day, I got a fucking all five drink recipes wrong. But I said it with confidence, <laughs> like I knew what I was
0: talking about. <laughs> and I got the job, because obviously she didn't know it was in the drinks either. Or she just liked your pizzazz, the fact that you owned it either way. Yeah. that you. Yeah, if you start stuttering and sweating, even if you get it right, yeah. it no difference. I,
1: I jump behind the stick, and, you know, with my recipe book, and I needed it there. Yeah. Like I got some, you know, pink ladies. I got some grasshoppers. You
0: don't get I, that as much anymore. You don't get the names. A lot of times people just give you the ingredients and the title and what they order. And it's so much easier now. But back then. But it was the palace. It yeah, was like, you know. A it,
1: yeah, it was the palace. It was the 90s. It was that, you know, uh, older crowd, rich crowd, you know, and like, it, you know, it's like the Greyhound. You yep. couldn't just say vodka and grapefruit. Right. Like, you're going to make yeah, me look exactly. up Greyhound,
0: right? And you know how many times I put tequila in a Greyhound just because I'm, I just, tequila, grapefruit, I hand it to him, and They're like, ugh, what is this? And it's like, I don't know. I fucked up. It's what it yeah. is, basically. But, you know,
1: that was the one thing. Once I looked it up and I made it, I never forgot it. Here yeah. we are, you know, 20 something years later, and I still remember what's in a pink lady. Yeah. You know, and it was like, you know, and that's how I learned. Um, You know, left that bartending gig, uh, you know, I was uh, over on the west side, a place called Landmark Tavern. Still there, isn't it still there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the third oldest bar in New York. I mean, it was open during Prohibition. When that thing was built, 11th Avenue was water. It was the docks. They have pictures in the place of showing like outside the bar where it was the waterfront because all of 11th and 12th Avenue from there is landfill. Damn yeah it's like you go in that place it's like and look at the pictures is walk through history then uh you know i i lived in bayside i got a job on bell boulevard tendon bar in the neighborhood and then uh next thing you know i was out in the hamptons at my boss's house and i had some resumes in the back of the car and i'm driving home it's uh was labor day weekend mm-hmm. um and then i went down dune road and the hamptons and i stopped at a couple of places uh called neptunes and you know a place called dockers and dropped off a couple of resumes on my way home and uh i got a job at dockers and I, you know i spent the next few summers bartending out in the hamptons that's awesome what yeah. part uh it was the hampton Baysy Squag area um and uh know, yeah, i started bartending bar out there i'd work like uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night in Bayside. I get my car at 4 a.m., drive out to the Hamptons, work Saturday, Sunday, because it was a happy hour (laughs) bar, uh, and maybe Monday, and then I go back and just, you know, kept busy enough, you know. And And were you drinking? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Was it still beer at that point, or had you graduated? No, no, I was still pretty much a beer drinker, you know, um, and, uh, yeah, it was a, I had blonde highlights and a diamond earring, you know, <laughs> yes. like, oh, you know, it. yeah, yeah, I got We've, pictures. I've been there, I've been, know, been there both counts. Yeah, and it was just, it was fun, you know, um, and then I did a year down in South Beach, and I, was a small re- I owned a small piece of a small restaurant on the off-season, I opened down in Ninth uh, and Collins down in South Beach, you know, and then in the, one year in the off-season I managed a bar here in the city, and like, you know, just... It was a lifestyle, yeah. And I tell people, like, yeah, I'm not an actor. I'm, you know, I'm not. No, I'm a professional bartender. This, this is, what, is I what I do. And Be- that
0: probably made you so much more infinitely interesting to people, yeah. because everybody's trying to shuck a side hustle. So that when you that talk being to said,
1: them. you know, like, I had acting aspirations because that's how I figured. That was the only way I could really imagine me being rich. Is if I got discovered behind the bar and became the next Bruce Willis.
0: Yeah. You know, and He's I, the story. He's the New York yeah. guy, the bartender and, that turned famous.
1: You know, and then uh, I'd even go as far to get headshots done. I'd never mail them out. I signed up for a couple of acting classes. As soon as they told me to learn a monologue, I'd be like, you can't teach acting. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> because back then, I'd rather, I was a party boy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'd rather dream the dream than live the reality. Yeah. And that was the it's truth. It's still true for you a lot know, of people. I, I needed that fast money and that, you know, that party lifestyle.
0: So you're down in the Hamptons, things are kind of going fun there, and you're having a good time. Any crazy stories that you remember from back in those days? Because there's got to be ripe full of stories back in the Hamptons yeah, in the summer. I mean, it was all
1: Hampton house, and just they, just one big party.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: you know, it was, a, it was a, a 30-something crowd happy hour bar, so there wasn't a lot of, like, fights or anything like that. Everybody there was more on the grown-up side. They would come, and... You know, just get their party on and like, you know, but it was a happy hour bar. Okay. So it was great for me, you know, because I'd go in, you know, earliest I'd be in is noon. Okay. But normally four o'clock, but I'd be out by midnight. Yeah. And then go make the rounds.
0: That's a dream. You know, yeah. I mean, it was just. Did things close earlier out there or were you just on no, an early just shift? was my bar. Okay.
1: It was your you know, it was at, Yeah, it was on the bay. It was a happy hour bar, you know, and it just, you know, it died out. People went home, showered up to go out to the clubs at night. Yeah, You know, and, uh. As did I. Yeah, yeah. hell yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just the whole scene, you know? It was just one big party around the clock.
0: What year was this? Like, what, what t- point in time mid-90s. are we talking? Nice. Okay, yeah, it was
1: the mid-90s, you know? But, you know, um, and I had always had wound up being lucky. I'm incredibly lucky, you know? I always had, like, you know, a cool Hampton House crowd, and, you know, uh, and it was great, too, because if I ever did stay out there during the week, I was the only one in the house, because everybody was weekenders. Okay. You know, and, yeah. it, you know, I didn't have a share. I had a room, you know, it wasn't like, you know, it was my room, you know, but uh, and during the week, it was, I'd have this huge house with a pool and a tennis court, you know,
0: it's all to myself. And anybody who's been out to the Hamptons knows that's a hookup. Like, that's a really great find if you have something like that to yourself. Yeah, you know, and, and during, on the
1: weekends, I didn't care because I was working. I was out, you know, yeah. I came out, I worked, you know, I went home and slept, you know, that was it. That's awesome. And, and, you know, it was was cool, too, because it was like I never went to college, but I imagined it was what, like, a frat house would be like because you'd wake up, there was always somebody around and somebody somebody to hang out with and talk to and, like, you know.
0: Um, Yeah, it was, you know, it was fun. Yeah, shit, sounds it. So you get back to the city, and where would you go from there? Were you still at landmark or where were you so no 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 i I, when i started the hamptons i was
1: only bartending in on bell boulevard in bayside And Bayside and the hamptons and then i left uh bell boulevard when i moved down to south beach you know after the season was over in the hamptons i went down to south beach um and opened a small restaurant down there and you know ran that for that season and then i came back for the hamptons and then uh I wound up not going back down to South Beach. I had some legal troubles. Okay. You know? <laughs> um, and I wound up staying in the city and managing a bar on the Upper East
0: Side. And, and then, you know. Have you been back to South Beach since? Are you allowed in South Beach? I should ask that. Pending investigation.
1: <laughs> Broward County still has some issues with me. I ain't going to lie. Uh, which I didn't even know about. Uh, until just a few years ago because... No shit. Yeah, you know, I wound up going to a, I, I had called up years ago, uh, like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. to see if there were any outstanding issues. And, and I talked to, like, the court clerk, and they're like, nah, there are no issues. And I was like, cool, must have just expired because already 10 years had gone by or whatever. And I was like, cool, no worries. Then I wound up trying to get a gun license up in my lake house.
0: Which is in New York? Yeah, Orange yeah, okay. County,
1: and uh, they said, "Oh, you have to get the depositions from all your cases and all any courts that you were ever in." Which for me, it was a couple, mm-hmm. you know, and one of them being Broward County. And I went and I got my deposition, and it said "open warrant." It's like "open warrant." It's like really, <laughs> like you know, after all this time, okay. And I hired a lawyer, on uh, to go out and you know get it expunged, get it disposed. You know, I mean, it's been you know, a while, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the guy went and he, the same judge was still on the bench and she wanted me to appear.
0: I'm like, the know. same judge, same, what judge. are we talking?
1: 20 years later? Yeah. Shit. And it was the same judge on the bench. And I was just like, you know what? I don't need to appear. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I could spend my whole life whenever go out without ever going to Broward <laughs> County again yeah um and I was just figured I'd wait a couple of years and maybe I'd readdress it and she'd be off the bench and that's you why know,
0: so there's yeah. no statute of limitations right no it was a
1: violation not. of uh probation of a misdemeanor case what um, a pain in the ass it's yeah. a, a glorified parking ticket well it was a little more than that but you know I mean, at this stage of the game like I you know I have 20
0: year old misdemeanor yeah
1: I mean you know and uh but I was like I didn't feel like going down there and uh appearing in somebody making, like, an example of me. Yeah. Uh, You know, I'm not really that interested in spending a night in jail, nevertheless, 30 days, or God knows what could happen. So I was like, you know what, I'll just stay out of town. I don't like Florida anyway.
0: Hey, I'm with you, man, and if you go, you go in swim trunks, not a suit. Yeah. You don't want to go yeah. to court, and it's yeah. a fucking weird state to begin with, especially the court system. I wouldn't. I think you probably made the right move. Yeah, and you know. Matter of fact, a, a few years have
1: gone by now. I might read, you know. Now that we're talking about, it, I might readdress <laughs> it. To see if uh, I can't get that expunged. You know. Yeah. You know. Eventually, I would like to have a a, a clear record. You know. It'll feel no nice. No open words. It'll
0: feel nice when that. Not that ship it's is ever saved. really haunted
1: me in my sleep, but right. Yeah, I didn't even know it, exi- it, it existed until like three
0: years ago. Damn. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, uh, life's funny.
0: Yeah, it makes me want to kind of investigate if I have anything going anywhere, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I, you know, I don't drive often, so I don't get pulled over, so I wouldn't know, really. I got anything. pulled over in Florida. And they didn't do anything about it? Yeah, and uh, so I can go to South Beach.
1: It's Dade County okay. in South Beach. Uh, I got arrested in Broward County, which is where I was living at the time, Hollywood. Okay. Obviously, as soon as I got arrested, I moved to Dade County. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: can't go here anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, and the rest of my time in Florida, I stayed in Dade. Okay. Um, but, and I got, I would sit down uh, at the Everglades with my mom and my daughter, like, you know, just driving through the Everglades and, you know, Everglades, I was speeding. It's wide open road. There's yeah. nobody on it. Yeah. You know, a cop pulled me over doing like 90. Um, and uh, he gave me a ticket. You know, he ran my... License, nothing nothing popped up, you know? Um, and that was like two years prior to me invest- finding out about this warrant.
0: Damn. Yeah. yeah. Shit, everybody out there, if you think you know about your past, if you've been arrested, because you called, too. You did the right thing. I did
1: call. I, yeah, and I, they said, no, oh, there's nothing on file. Um, Shit. But I, I don't know if she typed in the wrong name or what, you know, but there's clearly something. They still have hard feelings. God there's almighty. still something on file.
0: Well, let's get the hell out of Florida like everybody should. We're back in the Upper East. You're managing, is it Victory? What?
1: No, no. I um, So uh, I did the Hamptons every season, and then uh, I moved to the Upper East Side. Okay. Uh, I got an apartment on 91st and uh, 92nd and 2nd. Um, and then a guy I knew owned the Victory Cafe. Uh, he was he was f- best friends with my boss from Queens. Um, you know uh, that where I used to bartend, and I had known him because they were friends. And uh, you know it was right around the Hamptons time. Mm-hmm. Like it was May, and it was time to go back out east. And uh, he's like, "Oh, well, why don't you come work here instead?" And it was literally across the street from my apartment. Yeah, and I'm like, ah, you know, and I was. All right, you know, and I decided not to go back out to the Hamptons, and I started bartending at the Victory Cafe instead. Okay. You know, and I stayed there until uh, 2001.
0: Notably different from everything I've heard from where you were in the Hamptons. You weren't getting out at midnight at the Victory Cafe.
1: No, the Victory Cafe was, again, (laughs) it was like uh, Bayside Bell Boulevard all over again. It was a neighborhood place, had a good restaurant crowd had a good bar crowd, you know, and I brought the party. You know, yeah. uh, you know, I always like to be entertaining back there and uh Sure. You know, and uh, yeah, I you know, every night I worked I had a nice little little soiree of people hanging out there, you know, regulars and people popping in and it was a good time.
0: Yeah. Friend of A lot of re- late nights. Oh, I can imagine. well that's what I've heard. Friend of the Real Tales from the Bar Side podcast, Vic Henley, who was also a guest early on in the show, has all kinds of wild tales about it. And he's just like place we locked the doors a few
1: times yeah you know, uh, and just uh yeah and then uh, you know my house was right across the street so there, everybody was always welcome to after hours there as well yeah you know? hell um, yeah
0: and that's the thing too i know uptown which was were you up there when uptown existed i uh, yeah yeah so uptown had been there a while before it turned into the two-door tavern and when joe and i another friend of the real tales on the bar side podcast joe black when he and i were running it late night you know, we'd lock the doors, and if people came by and wanted to come in, there were certain people and certain crowds that were the night creatures. Yeah. And it was like, you know, you want to come in? 50 bucks. 50 bucks to get in. And people would, yeah, sure, hell, fuck. And they just peel it off, come in, and just have some fun. It's a late night party. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, out.
1: and I always
0: made sure the bar got paid. Yeah, oh, know? we did too, I mean, 100%. So You're still I, paying for your drinks, but, yeah. like, for us to stay here, it's 50 ahead. Yeah. And they were cool with it. Yeah. Because it's like, and we were kind of being dicks about it. Like, we don't want to be here, dude. Make it where they're... Thinking that they would just understand yeah. and leave, they didn't.
1: I was very similar. Like, uh, you know, I the Victory, when I worked, was like the place where all the other bartenders would come for that last drink. And yeah. when they got off work and that, that late night vampire crowd um, yeah. would come because I would always stay open,
0: you know? Yeah. Um, you know, uh,
1: but, you know, it was the lifestyle. I was in it, you know?
0: I sure. loved it. And I think... Where another place where the overlap definitely existed the Venn diagram between uptown and victory is Coke like there's so much blow at uptown, so it just fueled that we this need was to be open to six yeah and now. even even as, as early as recently as three years ago it was just people want a place to go when they're doing a ton of blow yeah and it's a weird moral place for me to exist <laughs> as somebody in sobriety, long-term sobriety, but it's kind of one of those things where and we talked about pot and how people are gonna do it. Yeah. It's like I don't like cocaine at all. I'm not it's not to say I like pot, but I understand the use behind it. I really dislike cocaine, but people are still going to use it. And it's it's a different feel than if somebody showed up on dope or if somebody, you know popped a bunch of oxys and wanted to come in not out at a chair like people think they're still social and they're still having fun even though it's really not the most social of drugs i think people can convince themselves that it is yeah (laughs) i mean um so it's a weird place for me to operate from but it was one where it was just like hey it like you and i have discussed about certain things i'm either in or i'm out and I have to have a firm stance on certain shit, but in this instance, I'm bartending at a place that's late night. Yeah. So if I'm here, I'm here.
1: Yeah, I mean, like for me, um, you know, it wasn't like a pot wasn't really part of my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, people that smoke pot don't go out to the bar and drink. I mean, it's just not the case. Yeah. Um, and you know, coke was definitely uh, very prevalent, especially in the late night crowd. Um, but pills hadn't been hit the scene yet. Remember, I got out in you know 2001, um, and you know the the opiates hadn't really like definitely not like they are now, and heroin hadn't made that comeback yet either. Yeah. Not that a lot of heroin addicts are out of bars either. Mm-hmm. You know that bar crowd was uh, just really that late night bar crowd was like heavy drinkers and, and you know uh, cocaine users. Yeah. You know um, that was the scene.
0: You know, and those are the people that want to go out. To your point, point, 100. percent because by the late 90s, I was certainly using oxycotton because I would use anything I could get my hands on. And it was there. So I did it. And I did it wildly inappropriately. I remember taking an OC40 and going to a club because I thought it was like ecstasy. <laughs> and I almost collapsed on the ground. It was just not that drug. Yeah. but. I think that's what brought where I'm from, anyways, the resurgence of heroin because people would get hooked on oxys and then go for what's cheaper.
1: Yeah, well, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I believe the opioids are what brought made, you know, had heroin make that Ali type comeback. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, uh, once you can't get another script or the pills are too expensive and heroin is that cheap fix and yeah. you know and uh you know it's accessible and in I believe like you know um it's what definitely Brought that back, to, you know, um, because, you know, some people did heroin, like, but, you know, when I was a kid, I'm 45 now, uh, coming up, nobody really, like, you know, every blue moon you'd hear somebody snorted heroin or yeah, smoked it, but, sure. you know, hard IV heroin users, they're kind of like, they weren't as populous as they are now in the last, like, definitely in the last decade. I mean, like,
0: it's exploded.
1: Jesus, like, yeah, I mean, between the opioids and heroin, like, nine people in my up at my lake house like died in that small little town like over this past year, it's it's absolutely absurd.
0: Yeah, I've lost two since April. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely
1: awful. absurd, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, and you know, it is all because of the prescription medication, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely what started it all, um, making that, you know, like I said, Ali-like
0: comeback. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's a really apt comparison because the comeback's strong. Oh, yeah. And I don't know what's going to change it. You know, it's a, there's a lot of halfway houses and recovery. I, one of the things I like is that there's no shame in being in recovery anymore. There's no, no. dark little secret, even in Irish families where we don't talk about anything. Yeah. It's something that you don't hang your head and shame I mean, I was right?
1: a party boy. I loved, you know, I loved my booze, I loved my women, I loved my cocaine. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I've been sober a long time and, you know, I'm just blessed that, I'm grateful that opioids weren't out there when I was using, yeah. you know, and ecstasy wasn't really that popular either, you know. Um, you know, it just wasn't, you know, like I'd heard about it, like, and, you know, design drugs had just hit the scene, but, you know, it wasn't really, I wasn't that interested. I liked the high I had in between booze and Coke, you know, yeah. and I was like, I was quite content to that. I wasn't really looking to think outside the box and explore, <laughs> you know, I really enjoyed my party boy lifestyle. Yeah. Um, But like everybody else, like, you know, uh, you know, that last year of my drinking when, you know, the booze and Coke turned into booze coke and freebase you know and things got messy yeah you know, i lost my you know and i didn't get fired from my bartending gig i the owner literally sat me down he was a friend of mine he just looked at me like you need a break
0: <laughs> you know like he didn't even fire me he just said yeah. you need a break that's how you we enabling, it like i gotta t- is, i got a time out yeah you know? like yeah. really like up freebase yeah we might need a no I hadn't I hadn't really
1: started that yet it was oh, like okay.
0: after I lost
1: my bartending gig cause then I couldn't afford my lifestyle anymore and it it was as simple as me uh, running around with this girl who, who smoked free bass. and then one night I was like oh let me try that and then it was like oh yeah I like that Yeah. You know? it's like yeah like let's do some more of that shit and that last year was like when you know drinking and drugging became more important than working and hustling for me yeah. And then, uh, you know, I had that moment of divine intervention. Um, you know, I was coming down on a three day run because every time I drank, I don't know, you know about you when you were partying, but, you know, I, I'd just pick up a drink. I'd be out for three days. Oh, yeah. You know, I because, you know, I could work, I'd drink, I'd work, I'd drink, and you know, just go around the clock for two, three days.
0: Um, I, would, I, I would get all fucked up, not sleep. It didn't matter what I was doing for work, I'd show up maybe three times in my life I think I called out due to drugs or booze, but I would show up even on a landscaping job. I'd blow leaves for eight hours and then go back to the place where my car was, have somebody bring me you know, a quarter pound of mushrooms, buy them, go in the bathroom of the landscaping place and divide them all up into eights. I had a pager and I'd just kind of go into the office and people would page me and have somebody come pick me up and just go from there, go out in another bender and then show up. I just didn't sleep, Yeah, it was chaos. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, you, know, I'm, you know, my lifestyle afforded it. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, the bartending lifestyle. You know, I was a party boy. Yeah. And I pulled it off for a long time, but yeah, definitely at the end, I got messy. You know, uh, and then, you know, I found myself in a place where it was like, how the fuck did I get here? Yeah. You know, I owned my first restaurant when I was 25, and here I was 29, and I was unemployable. Because I couldn't show up three days in a row.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: and... uh you know, it's just, you know, I took a drink, then the drink took a drink, then the drink took me, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then, yeah. uh, you know, and that's, uh, I got sober 16 years ago, last night. That's oh, when my, my journey started. Uh, it was crazy. And then
0: life just got crazier when I got sober, <laughs> you know? It's like,
1: well, you, love to, you love to say, oh yeah, I lived happily ever after, but you know, that wasn't my story. Yeah,
0: life kind of just steps up. And from there, things just get wild. Let's, let's take a quick break and jump right back into that because there's plenty more to be heard from. So we'll get back to it right after this. All right, guys. As you're going to find out in the second half of this podcast, our man Ray has all kinds of wild hands in different pots. And uh, one of them is the film industry. He's gotten himself involved In this particular upcoming film to be released October 26th on the distribution end of things, London Fields, it's a thriller. It's starring Amber Heard and Billy Bob Thornton. might also be starring a certain swashbuckling pirate from Disney movies. Got his start on 21 Jump Street. I don't know. You'll have to watch it to find out. A little blurb on it real quick. Amber Heard is a clairvoyant femme fatale named Nicola Six. She's been living with a dark premonition of her impending death by murder. She begins a tangled love affair with three uniquely different men, one of whom she knows will be her murderer. Shit, that sounds kind of like a Minority Report kind of thing going. It sounds fucking great. I'm in on it. Ray's in on it, literally. And I can't wait to see it, because Billy Bob's my guy. I just finished season one of Goliath. Fargo season one, he just warmed my heart, and Bad Santa is one of my (laughs) all-time favorite films. So London Fields, October 26th, check it out. Back in action with Ray Boudreaux, we are in 2002, May. You got a phone call, what happened?
1: Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was a hot mess, Uh, you know, and my whole life I was a poor kid, didn't want to grow up to be a poor man, Mm -hmm. and I was always on the hustle. You know, even before my first job at the Sizzler, it was walking dogs, walking kids to school, babysitting, you know, just, you know, getting out of the street. Mm -hmm. You know, I did a stint in the Army. I did a stint as a New York City cop, you know, but I kept gravitating back to that bar-restaurant business. Here I was, you know, uh, I lost my bar gig, you know, in uh, August of 01, right, like two weeks before 9-11. You know, and I uh, had had a union book. My uncle worked in construction, Mm -hmm. and I started working in construction, which I had done part-time like two years previously, but very (laughs) part-time. You know, I went on vacation and didn't go back to work for eight months, you know, like kind of thing. Uh, When I lost my bartending gig, I needed a job. Um, So I started working construction, but like I said, I couldn't show up three days in a row. And I was an apprentice boy in the union, and I didn't get paid much anyway, like that last... You know, eight months of my drinking, I ran my credit card debt up to from zero to $25,000.
0: Damn.
1: And it was all bar bills and lifestyle stuff. I mean, um, and uh, it was May uh, of uh, 2002, and this kid I grew up with, he was best friends with my brother, he called me. And uh, I was partying, so I didn't answer the phone, of course. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm in my little shitty studio apartment on the Upper East Side with my secondhand furniture getting high until the money ran out as we do and um, yeah. but that that answer machine because it's pre-cell phone pre dating cell phones that answering machine light had been blinking at me for three days and I was the type as I was coming down I'd be cleaning up and dumping the ashtrays and the drug paraphernalia and going through the mail and sure enough I hit that answer machine button cleaning up my little apartment that looked like a bomb had gone off mm-hmm. um, and the message just said I just called to see how you were doing I couldn't tell you the last time I talked to the kid, the last time I hung out with him, the last time I'd seen him. And why he called me that day, I have no idea. But more so why I heard that message. I just called to see how you were doing. Mm. And I was able to look at myself like, how am I doing? And I knew at that time in that place that I was not going to get out alive if I didn't stop. No doubt. And I called him up and crying and coming down. And I I told him, I'm not going to get out alive. He said sleep it off tomorrow get up and go to a meeting that's what i did you know i'd love to say i stayed sober from that day to this day i didn't was that your first meeting your first experience with anything no no i had my mom had gotten sober like i said uh he had gotten sober i guess at that point it was like several years earlier Mm -hmm. and my mom had gotten sober also several years earlier so i knew about AA, and i had stopped From the age of 25 to 29 in those four years i had stopped drinking a couple of times three months three months six months mostly because i got arrested yeah you know and i was like you know trying to stay out of jail kind of thing um you know and i did a stint in a rehab like a preemptive strike to stay out of jail uh throughout those four years uh and so i was i was familiar with aa though it wasn't for me Mm-hmm. You know, it was a cult and those people like I oh, don't yeah. need that Absolutely. like you know, it's great for them. I'm glad it works for them. Yeah. They, I was stronger, smarter and faster. It wasn't gonna get me. Yeah. But at that moment at twenty nine years old I realized it had gotten me and I was like, All right, you know, and uh, I started going to meetings and, you know, it was lonely. Yeah. Like, I realized I didn't have any friends. Like I didn't have a life. All I did was work and drink and drink and work. And I had friendly acquaintances and people I would party with. But I had no life. Yeah. And I hadn't had one in quite some time. You know, and that, you know, and 30 days into my sobriety, I met my wife. You know, and here's tall, beautiful, blonde, well-educated, from a good family in Buffalo. And, I mean, gorgeous like the day is long. And she liked me, and I was like, "Huh?" <laughs> I was like Scooby Doo, like, "Huh?"
0: <laughs> was this in the halls? Was this in the meetings, or was this outside? the No, meetings? in you the meetings. No shit.
1: Um, you know, and then the next thing you know, I had friends. I was going. I went on like I was. I was counting days, and I went on this rafting trip with not a glum lot. Um, it's a group down here. They used to most of the, a lot of the members used to go to Soho. Mm -hmm. So 16 years ago, the meeting down here in Soho and Sullivan was a huge meeting, very popular, like, social Friday night meeting. Um, And, you know, here I was, like, you know, counting days, and it was July 4th weekend of 2002, and I'm on this camping trip, and I got friends, and I'm like, just like that, my whole life, I cleaned up quick enough, and my whole life, like, just turned around in that, like, 30, 45 days. Mm-hmm. You know that camper trip first time I made out with my wife. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and then you know, and I did it all wrong. You know, I had a sponsor. He said, "Don't date her." So I did the natural thing, and I fired him. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. What the hell do you know? Yeah, like, uh, and you know, after like six months, I stopped going to meetings, and and I drank again. You know, because and things were messed with her and I because. You know, uh, (laughs) they suggest that shit for a reason. Yeah. Um, But we loved each other, but she was crazy, I was crazy.
0: (laughs) Um, Speaking of crazy, dog attacks. (sighs) Dog attacks.
1: And uh, They had to
0: be separated, we're fine.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I wound up going out, um, and she got pregnant, you know, and... uh, While you were out? Well, I, I... you know, I, I'd gone out and I drank. I didn't go back to a lifestyle. Okay. You know, and I, uh, there was a year there, basically, um, almost a year, that uh, I wasn't really sober, I wasn't really drinking. You know, she got pregnant, we moved in together, and I was kind of like sneaking, drinking, like now and again. Um, you know, uh, when she was out of town or something like this. Like over that year, I drank like six times. <laughs> But I wasn't out running and gunning. Sometimes it was just like an afternoon or something, you know, and uh, you know, it was awful, you know, absolutely awful. I wasn't drunk, I wasn't sober, but I was working um, and I was in construction and I I moved up quickly. Like I'm incredibly lucky, Mm -hmm. you know, like I got sober in May. I got out of my apprenticeship in July 1st. Um, I instantly was a foreman because I was good at it Mm -hmm. when I showed up, (laughs) you know. and I within a year, I was running my own work, and you know I had a reputation, and I moved up quickly, you know, and then right after my daughter was born, I you know I you know, um that's when I knew like I'd gone out, and I'd gone out on a two night run, and I spent a thousand dollars, and I said, "Oh, that wasn't that bad, I just won't do that again." And then two weeks later, I went out for three nights and I spent three thousand, and I knew where the next stop on that train was, yeah, and I was like, all right. You know, I, and I, I walked back into rooms AA and for the first time I had the willingness. Like I always say my daughter saved my life because she gave me purpose and she gave me the willingness to do the work in AA in order to stay sober one day at a time from that day to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, in December 29th of this year, uh, God willing, I'll have 15 years. It's amazing. You know, and, and, and it's been a crazy 15 years. Yeah you know uh 15 years ago I was a construction worker I was a general foreman and I was you know I was running work and I was good at it um and then uh 12 years ago I started my own company you know uh you know, and in the interim it was always I was always getting out of construction too like I like right after my daughter was born I went to night school and got my real estate license and then I was working construction during the day and trying to practice you know practice real estate at night and so you know and which didn't work never does, yeah. And, and what happened was my the guys I worked for kept paying me more money, you know? And I was like, you know, I like kind of let the real estate thing fall aside and I was just a construction worker. And I made a good living, I, you know? Uh, we lived on the Upper East Side in the same apartment I had had, which was rent stabilized and it was great, you know? Uh, you know, The studio turned into a one-bedroom one. I met my wife and then when I had my daughter came, it turned into a two-bedroom. And, you know, um, it was life, you know? Um, and then I started my own company 12 years ago, and uh, you know, and then th- things just blew up. You know, and I had no idea about starting a company. It was crazy. Like I got this idea. Like those guys, <laughs> these two are at it.
0: Yeah, these two are at it. Uh, she's got a bone
1: he wants, <laughs> and he's a jerk.
0: Um, he's a beautiful jerk.
1: All right, I'm gonna separate
0: you two. <laughs> you've done it you've done this to
1: yourselves so anyway like I had gotten this idea to start my own company and the company I worked for was just a payroll company to me, and I could do this and I don't need them mm-hmm. and then I you know I definitely leapt before I looked because I was like yeah the city's on fire with work and I could hook up with a small company I have a reputation in this and that meanwhile I had no idea about the business of my business mm-hmm. like the food or the suit or the workman's comp the surety bonds or, yeah. you know, any of that stuff all I knew how to do was build a building and manage men and I gave my notice <laughs> like after because I had told them I wanted a bonus and they gave me they made me wait eight weeks and gave me the same bonus they gave everyone else mm-hmm. and I made them more money than any two guys that worked for And I was just like, you know what, don't book me any more work. I'm going to finish this job, which was three months left, and I'm going to start my own company. And they came down and fired me the very next day. Yeah. And and then I was
0: forced to figure it out. I was like, well, okay. Um, And how old's your daughter at this point? Two. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're yeah. fucking figure it out. Yeah, and
1: I had no savings. Like I had no money. I was a paycheck player. <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, I wrote a business plan, and you know, I got somebody to fund me, and you know, I figured out all the business behind the business. Um, and then uh, yeah, I was I had to work like three months, four months, and then I got a call. And I started cold calling companies, and you know, I, I wound up taking a job in my industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had that job for two weeks and I hated it. It was like an office job um, while I was cold calling companies because I had put all the pieces together and I was just finding a customer. And I, uh, I went back to work, I took this day job and, uh, and then my phone rang. And this guy's like, oh, I heard you have a steel company. Yes, I do. Oh, I have a project, would you like to bid it? Yes, I would. Can you come in tomorrow? Absolutely. No shit. I had this guy, Donald O'Sullivan from Novelist Contracting. And uh, I went in the next day. I bid that job. I got that job. The job had started a month later. And from that job, you know, the rest is history. I, I kept getting jobs and working, you know, for him as a subcontractor kind of consultant. So you um, became his guy for the most part. For the most part. He used other companies throughout the last 12 years. But, yeah, I've done a you know a majority of his work. And I had some other customers where I partnered with him mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, he would give me, he lent me his infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, and I would do the work. He, would, you know, do the payroll and the infrastructure and insurance and everything. And then we'd split the profits. Okay. So it was a good relationship, uh, which still continues today. Yeah, you know, I built, I had the, uh, the privilege of building the World Trade Center Memorial, um, which, you know, I have a, a history with. You know, I uh, I had seen. I was working construction right after I lost my bar gig, two weeks before 9/11, and I was working construction out in Jersey. And uh, I was standing on the docks, on coffee, uh, watching smoke come out of Tower One, wondering what had happened, and watched the plane fly in and out of Tower Two. Jesus. Um, matter of fact, I, I you, you know me and my cousin were there. I you know. Uh, we ran to the path train which was about almost three-quarters of a mile away and we must have caught the last path train back in the city and i'm a union iron worker so you know after uh the towers went down the next day we went down and volunteered and we dug uh, for three days until they threw us off site um so when that came out to bid that was like that was you know the one thing like you know i i got into construction reluctantly Mm-hmm. You know, when I got first offered the union book at twenty-seven years old, I told you know through my grandmother had my uncle get me a union book, and I said no, no, thank you, yeah. thank you, but no, thank you. Yeah. I'm a professional bartender. I don't, yeah, I'm not a construction worker. And like I said, I was leaving every year to do something else, even after I got sober, like real estate or, you know, uh, and but you know when the trade center. So when I started my own company in construction, it was really just because I was good at it. I liked the hours. I liked the money, and I was good at it. It wasn't because I had an overwhelming love for construction. Um, and then when the trade center came out to bid, I definitely that was the one thing I ever wanted to build. And you got to build it. And I got
0: to build it. And it's fucking beautiful, man. What a, what a memorial it is to Interesting that Interesting
1: enough, last year was the first time I ever went down there. Really? Yeah, I, I left there September of two thousand eleven, right before it opened, uh, and I had never been back until last year.
0: What'd you think? It's special. Yeah. You know,
1: uh, it was definitely special. Um. But yeah, you know, uh, and then now I'm currently building one Vanderbilt, right next to Grand Central Station. Okay. I've had a
0: hell of a fucking run. Yeah, those that that first bid turned into something serious. Fucking crazy. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this, yeah, you bounced a lot. And it's funny because the beginning of your story really matches a lot of mine, where I started at 11, bagging ice at a corner store and fishing golf balls out of the marsh for the owner of the store to bring it back for fi- a nickel, yeah, a-, a ball, and then it was onto the paper route before dishwashing. And it just, Collecting everything, cans hustle, on the boardwalk. whatever it <laughs> takes, yeah. just hustle. But where mm-hmm. you've gone since you started the steel company, I, I mean, it's... Now you're involved in films.
1: Yeah, I'm incredibly lucky. Um, Like when I started my company, I had this idea. Like it was the it was it was 2006, summer of 2006. Mm -hmm. You know, August of 2006 2006 to be exact. And I got this idea. You know, I could hook up with a new company that must be starting to come in and take some of this work. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I hooked up with novelists who, prior to me coming on board, had only done three concrete jobs prior to me. Working for them, Um, they were a relatively new company, and uh, and then, you know, oh, you know, I started the end of '06. I got my first contract in '07. Was just busy. I had three buildings going at once in in 2007, and in 2008, money started coming in, and I remember I got my first $50,000 check that didn't have a home. I was like, whoa, (laughs) what what would I do with $50,000 now? You know, back it up too a few years prior to that when I first got sober I filed bankruptcy for $25,000 because at the time that was all the money in the world and I could never imagine paying it
0: back Yeah,
1: and I had already ruined my credit you know so I was just like yeah I'll just file bankruptcy for twenty five grand. and here I had a $50,000 check um, six years later and I was like whoa like what do I do this and I didn't watch the news or read the papers but I knew the stock market had crashed and like it kept going down and you know and I said, I'm gonna buy a stock. And uh, I bought my first stock the day after the low point of all time. I bought Ford at $2.38. Holy shit. And from the time I bought the stock, the stock market never went down again. Uh, And within a year, I kept buying Ford because it kept going up. I sold Ford a year later at $13. You know, and then uh, I bought my first townhouse, you know, up in East Harlem. and. You know, and I just invested wisely. Mm-hmm. You know, I made money, and then construction got slow. You know, when I finished uh, the Trade Center in 2011, I didn't have any real work, 2012, 2013. You know, like I some maintenance jobs just to keep a couple of guys working, but I didn't make any money. I was able to maintain my lifestyle because I didn't overextend.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I had invested wisely. My investments did well, and I was, yeah, okay. And then uh, four years ago, construction came back strong. You know, and I started putting up towers like, you know, 60, 70 story buildings and, you know, a, a couple of them. Yeah. And then I was like, well, what do I do next? You know, I'm in my early 40s and I was like, you know, I, my company's going well and I'm making money. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to start a production company.
0: And that was right around the time we met. Yeah. Bikram Yoga, yeah, upper, Bikram east Bikram side, yoga upper East Side. Upper East Side. We ran into each other in a class and we were, I think, the only two guys in it.
1: Yeah, it was three
0: years ago, October, I got the idea okay. to
1: start the company. Um, I had a long-term girlfriend, and I had, we had talked about me going back to school uh, to take a producer's class. Mm-hmm. You know, like an eight-week program at NYU or New York Film Academy. Sure, yeah. um, and I had talked about that for two years. You know, I barely graduated high school. I'm not going back to school. But here I was, you know, three years ago. I, was, I had some money, and I was like, I'm going to make some movies. You know, figuring I'd take a million dollars, I'd make four shitty little indie movies, and I'd lose all my money. But mm-hmm. I'd learn. Mm-hmm. That's not really what happened. Um, I did, uh, you know, I wound up putting a significant amount of money in the film industry, like to the tune to five million. And over the last two and a half years, I've been a part of seven films. Uh, and none of them shitty little quarter of a million dollar indies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's been an interesting ride. And, you know, it's definitely, uh, you know, I'm... The business idea I have of the company I want to create going forward, uh, as far as a distribution company and you know creating content, distributing it, marketing it, um, talent management, and I want to build different you know breakouts of this company to make it like one-stop
0: shopping. Now, do you see? I know you're a business-minded guy and you're really more focused on what's going to generate revenue, but you're an artistic guy too. You're creative. We've definitely had conversations where you do value the art behind it too. Absolutely, I mean, and like telling a story that
1: needs to be told. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. A, a movie that I just had out at Toronto uh, last month uh, called *The Public*. You know, um, one of the things that drew me to that project was, you know, it's it's a it's a social drama. Mm-hmm. You know, he it, it's a, and told in an entertaining way. You know, it's about homelessness and a uh, peaceful sit-in in the library that goes awry, you know, based upon, like, outside influences. You know, a guy running for DA that wants the cops to go in and, you know, show he's tough on crime. And then there's a reporter out in the street that's calling it a hostage situation, <laughs> you know, because she wants ratings. And it's like, you know, and it's, so it's, it's touching base on a lot of things that we're seeing every day. Yeah. And it's also talking about homelessness and like, you know, that people, you know, they're out there for a reason. Everybody has a different reason. You know, and it's not all that they're drunk and crazy. You know, some people just hit hard times and it is talking to, to all of that and to be able to tell that story in an entertaining way to perhaps start the conversation. Shining light in a dark place. Yeah,
0: that's you know? the essence of recovery, I think.
1: And that's also the essence of ent- movies. You know, like, you know, um, for me, you know, I like to be entertained. I like to learn. I like to, you know, be provoked to think and to start a conversation. And like, you know, whether for or against, like, you know, and, um, and you know, uh, Emilio Estevez, The he's the producer, uh, director. He wrote it. And he also starred in it. You know, he did a great job with it. And I couldn't be prouder of it. Um, you know, I really, he entertained me. That's um, awesome. That's you know, fantastic, man. Like in an interview, somebody asked me, well, why are you in film? You want to be famous? No, not really. Uh, money? Well, if I wanted money, I'd stay in construction. <laughs> you know, uh, you gotta, if you're going to be in the entertainment business, you got to love it. You know, um, and then like, well, how we, what are you looking for? If somebody quotes back to me a line from one of my movies to me, not knowing I had made the movie, that's when I know I'll be successful.
0: Yeah, that's a good bar.
1: I'll have entertained somebody.
0: That's a really good bar. That's a good measure of success, I think. And you're smart, too, in that you spread the money around. Like, you you understand blind entertainment that isn't necessarily quality with big stars can generate revenue, but if you're making something like the public, in addition to movies like that, that's where awards consideration comes in because people still value those movies even if they don't make money and then you ascend to another level. And that's a big part of the building, I feel like, that goes on behind yeah. the scenes.
1: And I'd say there was a plan, but there isn't. Like, I don't have plans. I have directions. I'm going to go that way. I'm going to see where that <laughs> like way that. takes Oh, me. I like that. It served you and, well uh, so far. And trying to, trying to just make you know the smartest business choices I can, mitigate my risk wherever I can. You know, but, you know, and also just uh, making entertaining content. Like, I'm trying to marry that good business that makes entertaining content. You know, people, everybody asks me the same question. What genre are you in? Fuck
0: you, genre. <laughs> you
1: know? I mean, I'm in the business of not losing all my money. You know, yeah. I'm in that business. I don't need to make money necessarily, but I need to not lose my money because I want to get to play again. Yeah. You know, that's the key is like, you know, create something get my money back and get to do it again. Mm -hmm. And hopefully put myself in a position to get lucky. You know, it's the Monte Carlo theory. If I make 10 movies, I'll have a hit. You know, the key is not to lose my money in between one and 10. Yeah. You know, which is very difficult. You know, it's like more people lose money than make money in the industry. There are more losers
0: at the Monte Carlo than there are winners, absolutely. uh,
1: But it's like, it's a dollar and a dream. Yeah. You know, and I'm still young enough. I still got some fire in my belly. That's why I started it now. Like, because, you know, if I lose the money, well, I've lost it. At least I said I tried it. I know it sitting on my couch gets me, gets me nothing. Mm-hmm. But I'm out there. And if I fail, it will not be for lack of trying. You know, bottom line, it's like, if I know I did the best I could, the results are inconsequential. Yeah. You know, and the results are going to be what the results are, man. All, I'm a, all I have control over are my choices, my decisions you know, the outcome, you know, you know as well as anybody, well, you know, the outcome's going to be the outcome.
0: Yeah. There's really only so much you can do about it showing up and putting your best foot yeah. forth.
1: And as long as I've done the best I could and I gave it a shot. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, if that's one thing I would always, I've been graced with was fearlessness. Mm-hmm. And I take, I took all the chances every step of the way.
0: Risk and you seem like it's calculated too. It takes you a long way. Like I said, for me, I'm uh, I'm, i'm good yeah. I'm a worker, yeah, I'm good
1: at working, like I like building, i like creating, i like you know like whether it's a high rise or a townhouse or you know a movie yeah you know uh you know i'll I'll risk my money in in my visions you know in myself before I'll go put it in the stock market or yeah. something like that's safe, you know i mean i I'll be safe when I'm fifty, yeah, you know, I'm still in my forties, so i'm gonna I'm, I'm taking
0: a page from that, yeah, you know, hold me to it, listeners. You heard it here first, I'm taking a page, I'm getting riskier, people aren't gonna like that, that know me, because I already take strange risks that maybe I shouldn't. People have been telling me I'm
1: crazy my whole life. <laughs> you know, kinda in that boat, yeah. You know,
0: honestly, when I bought my house in Harlem.
1: Why are you buying a house in Harlem? Okay. <laughs> you know, when I bought my first stock, you shouldn't buy stocks. You know, like, started my own company.
0: What are you, crazy? Yeah. Like, yeah I had a good job, you know. Yeah. And here we are. We're hanging in Alphabet City, a beautiful apartment, fighting dogs. You're sober. You're a great father. You got things going, man. You're set up. It's a living the dream. Films. It's the name of your company. Yeah, you
1: know, and it's a lifestyle.
0: Living the dream. Like once you tattoo
1: it on your arm, you have to own it. Yeah. I say I tell everybody, and it's not like every day is not sunshine and rainbows and mm-hmm. ponies. You know, like uh, my wife had passed last year. You know, and it's incredibly difficult. You know, my 13-year-old daughter lost her mother. She just turned 15. And, um, and the grief and the pain that she feels, I mean, but knowing that my place is just to take care of her, show up for her, be present, mm-hmm. do the best I can because the results are out of my, I can't make that pain go away. Yeah. You know, I can't change anything for her except for be present, show up, do the best I can. Yeah. And the best I can has to be good enough. Some days I do better than others. You know, but it is, it's just about that powerlessness um, and, and understanding that I have no control over anything except my choices, my decisions, you know, and the rest I have to let go of. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's hard. Like, you make money, you lose money. You know, some things will work, some things won't. Yeah. As long as I know I did the best I could, you know. And money is not the
0: most important thing, and you seem to have it. A- a grasp of that. Yeah, money you don't buy happiness. No. It's only
1: nice in case you don't
0: die tomorrow. Shit, you see so much of that in New York City because you can go just about anywhere in New York, whether you're a prince or a pauper. There are certain places you don't have admittance to if you aren't at a certain level. But when you have been here long enough to see how unhappy most wealthy people are, oh yeah, it's just like shit. That's not the answer.
1: D- money is definitely not the answer. No, like, and for me, like, I always thought I was greedy until I made a little money. You know, and then I realized I wasn't greedy. I just wanted to be safe and not be poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, you know, and it was just about, it really was about just enjoying life and, and following your dream. Yeah. You know, and that's what I try to do every day and, and sharing it. Yeah, you know, sh- like, philanthropy is a big part of my life. You know, and trying to help others when I can, like, you know, and trying to create businesses and create jobs and, like, you know, and, you know... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's what it really is about for me. You know, I just got in a truck and drove a truckload of uh, uh, $25,000 worth of construction equipment down to North Carolina two weeks ago.
0: I saw that on your social media page. You know, and,
1: and like giving back where yeah. I can. Like last year, this time, I spent two weeks down in uh, Big Pine Key setting up relief tents for Hurricane Irma victims you know, when Hurricane Sandy happened, I spent three months down in Rockaway, like volunteering, um, like, you know, with the uh, rapid repair program. Yeah, I have a skill set. Yeah. You know, and uh, trying to give back, and also writing checks, you know, like, you know, we were talking about the Academy Museum out in LA, and Mm -hmm. different charities that, you know, because everything needs money, you you know, and it isn't, you know, it is about trying to help, like anybody who asks me for a dollar in the street gets a dollar. Yeah. I don't judge what kind of sneakers they're wearing. matter of fact the other day I seen a squeegee guy you know and I didn't want my windshield clean but I was I gave, we talked and I said, I'm happy to see you out here because he's out there actually working he's doing something yeah. you know like uh, and when I was a kid coming up, nobody ever asked for a dollar. I you know they worked for it they either sang or danced or played an instrument on the trains yeah or squeegee guys like you know nobody had a sign. Like, they would do something for that dollar. And, I, you know, I, I was happy to see this guy ba- getting back to that. Like, I see it now, too, in the gas stations. Like, oh, you know, can I pump you gas for you? No, but here's a dollar anyway.
0: Yeah. You know, and um, because it doesn't matter what we do as long as we're doing something. As long as we're doing something. And this city, oh, man, I've, I've just been going through this a lot lately, too, where it's just my heart breaks. And I would have thought that 11 years into New York, in my journey here that I'd be hardened to this. I'm grateful I'm not, but it still fucking hurts that you can't walk three blocks without getting hit up three times by these people. And it's like, it pisses me off because I want to help. And I know even if I gave them a dollar, all of them, everyone who asked, it wouldn't help. And that's the thing that kills me. It's like, I'll grab somebody and be like, you want a sandwich? one of them not all of them because again like it's overwhelming to me where I want to help everybody but I fucking can't and it kills me like that actually hurts because I want these people to help themselves
1: well for me I'm not out there trying to save the world like usually it's like one of my main charities
0: mhm
1: <laughs> you know so they get 100 grand a year you know our lady of nazareth of notre dame you know frat knight of notre dame up in east Harlem. it's a soup kitchen okay it was down a block from my townhouse and, you know, it started that, you know, several years ago, you know, I would, when I first moved up there, I went and got gift cards because mm-hmm. there was a woman shelter next to my house and the soup kitchen. So at Christmas time, I went and got, Target was right across the street. I went and got a couple of thousand dollars worth of Target gift cards, 50 bucks. And how many residents do have? 67, leave seven, 67 gift cards there for the residents. And I would take the rest to the soup kitchen give them to the kids and people at Christmas for presents. First year, oh, I felt good about myself. And I was like, you know, second year I did it. None grabbed me and said, Oh, can I have your card? I want to send you a thank you note. Sure. <laughs> you know, I you know, gave her my card. Three months later, she called me up you know, out of nowhere. And she's like, Oh, we lost our benefactor. He died. His estate's not going to cover his contribution, and it's our operating cost. And I just really started making money. And I said, How much is it? And she's like hundred thousand dollars. Huh? But actually, at the time I had it, and I, you know, I was fortunate, you know. And I feel like it was all like kind of God given anyway. So I was yeah. like, yeah, I'll give it to you. That's awesome. I, and I said I can give, I could afford to give it to you this year. I don't know if I could afford to give it to you next year. Mm-hmm. And you know, every year I've been able to afford to give it to him. So I have. You know, it was similar like my daughter changing schools. Like she went to a school I could afford when I was a construction worker. And when I started my own company, I could afford a better school. And I could afford it this year. You know, that was when she was in second grade. You know, she just started ninth grade. And I've been able to continue to afford it up until now. I don't know what next year will bring, like, you know. But, you know, and it is about like, you know, uh, for me, not overextending and helping where I can. I'm not out there looking to save the world. That nun called me. Yeah, exactly. I never would have fucking offered a hundred grand. That's that's definitely you know, a good and, point too. You now, weren't looking for. And now people like you know, if I see somebody I can help charities, they reach out to me and I'll help if I can. You know, I mean, sure. You know, and writing a checks easy, showing up and actually being of service, you know, is what I really love. Yeah. Um, and I'll I'll do that like you know,
0: whenever I can. Now, do you want to plug anything your, from your social media pages, Instagram? Anything to films? Anything you want to throw out before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, living the dream films. You know, uh, Ray Boudreaux, You can find me on IMDb, on Instagram. Um, follow us. You know, go spell watch. that out for him because I, I threw an X in there accidentally. Sure, it's uh, R A Y. B is in boy. O U D is in David. E R A U. Um, and like I said, follow us, go, you see one of my movies come out, go watch it, you know, support the cause because independent films is that. Absolutely. You know, it is about not, not, I, you know, not stealing it off of the, uh, Amazon stick, the fire stick. Right. You know, it is about, you know, you have to pay for these movies is because they, so many of them lose money and bootlegging such a problem. I mean, you know, that, you know, even that people are seeing it, that the people that are making it aren't really getting paid for it. Oh, man, you know, uh, if you want to keep seeing the independent film community, you got to support it. You know, and, uh, I'm just trying to do my part, you know.
0: Well, man, it's been a joy talking to you. It's awesome knowing you. Always a pleasure, brother. Like a good brother. friend over the years, rags to riches story, Ray Boudreau, living the dream films. Listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in. Click subscribe. Hit us with a five-star rating. If you don't think we're worthy of five stars, come at me mcwflynn at yahoo.com tell me why and you know go back and forth have some words about it tons of love be good take it easy thanks again for listening to this episode of real tales from the bar side be sure to tip your bartenders and tip us by subscribing liking leaving us a review that stuff helps like hell and we really appreciate it so thank you again hope you enjoyed yourself and we'll catch you next week